0: And uh just a couple of other announcements from me. When I return April through July, I'll be talking about the four centers, which aren't really taught so much in Buddhism, a little bit in Tibetan and in Zen, um, but are well known um, in other traditions, including the diamond approach. And they correspond to the four instinctual drives that can that are really um, part of what we're Disidentifying from in the practice, and then the fourth drive being the enlightenment drive. So I'll be spending one month, starting um, April through July, on each of those and how those can support our practice. Working with them can uh, uh, can broaden our practice in different ways. And then lastly, I included in the chat a hot link to um, Inner Craft, which is a site that I was invited. I guess it's been almost two years ago to be one of the founding members of teachers of and uh, it's a monthly membership, but you can join for two weeks and try it out. And I now have five or six workshops on there, including the heart practices that I'll be talking about tonight. Samatha, Vipassana, Um Awakening, what is awakening? and then that my Zo Chen teaching has just been posted, which is pretty hard to come by these days anywhere. So I've gotten some really good feedback on that. And so if you're interested, you can check it out for free for two weeks. Okay, hey, so tonight um, I will be talking about, I've done five talks, I think on the heart practices, but the Brahmaviharas in particular in Buddhism. And tonight I'll be talking about uh, non-dual love. So I'll talk more about what that is in a few minutes. But I thought for the meditation, you're welcome to do any practice you like. But um, I thought I would do a guided meditation, a little bit of guiding, mostly uh, mostly silent and on your own. But uh, going through metta, Going from our, starting with ourself and going out to all beings, which is supportive of what I'll be talking about tonight. That is uh, kind of it's like, is there something after the Brahma viharas? So um, so this is kind of a good doing that practice is kind of a good lead in for that. So go ahead and um, and find your posture
1: Being upright and alert, but also relaxed. And letting
0: yourself land here. Seeing if you can let go of the day. And bringing yourself into the present moment.
1: Being right here.
0: Attending to yourself. And we'll do the metta practice, working up to all beings. Starting, as always, with the metta practice, we almost always will start with ourself. And in the metta practice, we the object is the person's goodness. So in this case, we're in touch with our own goodness. Could be the goodness that's inherent in you, in your Buddha nature, that all beings have. It could be specific aspects of your goodness that you really feel are you're connected to. Sometimes it's hard for people to offer themselves loving-kindness and well-wishing. And so connecting to some aspect of your own goodness. We can be very hard on ourselves and often see our flaws and, and overlook our goodness. So that's another way is to be in touch with some specific aspect of yourself that you feel really is a reflection. Of your goodness. And in this practice, the main object is the person and their goodness. So you can picture yourself or feel yourself sitting here either way. Or if it's hard to do that, you could picture yourself as a child or even as an infant pretty easy to see the goodness in ourselves and others as a child or infant. And then as a support for the next layer of this onion of the metta practice, loving kindness, is a sense of well-wishing. So well-wishing for yourself doesn't have to be at the level of unconditional love, but it's just a simple kindness, a loving kindness towards ourself. Like if it was for someone else, if you saw that person, you would think, gosh, I hope they're having a good day. That, that kind of well-wishing. And we can use phrases. And the phrases are a support. They aren't the object. So if they're supportive, the phrases that I use are may I be safe, may I be healthy,
1: may I be happy, may I live with ease, may I be liberated.
0: And you may have your own phrases and that's fine. You can modify those. You don't have to use them, but it supports that sense of well-wishing. Feeling into that yourself, your own goodness, your well-wishing for yourself. Are you seeing any blocks to that, maybe feeling you don't deserve it or that others need it more, maybe. And just seeing if you can put those aside and find the well-wishing. And at some point, you may actually feel the sense of loving kindness in your heart. And if not, that's fine. That's why this is a practice. Staying with yourself for a few minutes here. And I'll be silent. And then we'll go on to the next, the next person. So feeling your
1: goodness. And the well-wishing with the phrases, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I live with ease. May I be liberated.
0: And these things may not be happening right now, but what we're in touch with is the wishes for ourselves, that sense of care for our own well-being. Then going on to the next category of beings, as it's known, which is to ch- choose a person who is a benefactor to you. And a benefactor is someone who has helped you. You so may not even be someone that you've met. It could be the Dalai Lama, even. It's somebody where the relationship is fairly simple, not complicated. Someone who's easy to wish well for. Maybe a teacher, a spiritual teacher, or somebody who helped you when you were young. Not usually a parent. It can be a little complicated. And so now, just picking one benefactor. Picturing that person. Feeling you're caring for them.
1: Being in touch with their goodness.
0: And when we're in touch with someone's goodness, it doesn't mean they're perfect or may not have flaws. That's fine if they do. What we're seeing in this, what we're focusing on is the goodness. And then feeling our well-wishing for our benefactor, our loving kindness of them,
1: our caring. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you live with ease. May you be liberated.
0: Being in touch with these layers of their goodness or well-wishing. And then the possibility of feeling metta in the heart area. There's something that's, that's palpable. And if that's not arising, that's fine. It's just a possibility. And I'll let you practice silently with the benefactor
1: now for a few minutes.
0: And then going to the next category of friend, the friend or the, the beloved person, somebody that you that's in your life that you know pretty well. Might be a little more complicated relationship. Usually we work up to parents and others, but that's okay too. Somebody that you really care about and know well. And even with people like this, sometimes we can find blocks and that's okay. That's part of the purification of the heart is offering, feeling the well wishing and seeing whether, where that flows and where there may be, there may be blockages and both of those are fine, not to judge ourselves. If that happens, it's a practice. Picturing that person
1: caring for them. Being in touch with their goodness. And then feeling our well-wishing May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you live with ease. May you be liberated. Practicing with the beloved person for.
0: And now going on to the neutral person. You go from the easiest and it starts getting, might be hard, might not be too hard for you, but this would be your person who delivers your mail or somebody who checks you out in line at the grocery store or, or an acquaintance that you really don't know or maybe a coworker that you pass in the hall but don't know very well. Someone like that. And so we may not know a whole lot about them, but we can still be in touch with their goodness. Could be more general, knowing their Buddha nature. or could be something specific about them that you can be in touch with, that you've experienced. Picturing
1: them in front of you. in touch
0: with your well-wishing for them, hoping they have a good day, their life is, is good,
1: and again, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you live with ease. May you be liberated. And spending a few minutes with the neutral person. And then going to the
0: next category, which is now called the difficult person, used to be called the, the hated person or the enemy, just to give you a, a feel for it. And you know, this could be somebody who's you have had conflict with or, or even someone you don't know, like your least favorite politician. So someone that it's hard, harder. To see their goodness or to be in touch with. And we can be in touch with their Buddha nature that is common to all beings. And also, or, or something specific, even, even our least favorite politician may be very determined or have other qualities that we can see have some Reflection of goodness in them. Doesn't mean that we agree with everything that they've done or or even like them, but we can still be in touch with their goodness. So picturing that person
1: being in touch with their goodness. inclining towards that, feeling a sense of well-wishing for them. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you live with ease. May you be liberated.
0: And now, moving to all beings. And it can be more meaningful to do all beings when we've gone through some individuals to make it more personal. Sometimes if we jump to all beings, it can be very general and not really work those blockages so much. So now we... Start extending our sense of the goodness of all beings, the underlying
1: nature, and our sense of
0: well-wishing. And this could be beings that you know could go from one being to another, include animals, of all kinds, pets, wild animals, beings that you don't know, beings around the planet, beings who may be suffering,
1: beings who may be happy.
0: feeling, that sense of well-wishing as we touch upon different beings,
1: that same sense, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you live with ease. May you be liberated.
0: Feeling if you're in touch with the feeling of the metta in your heart. Feeling it radiating out in all directions. And if you're not in touch with it, that's fine. You can still have that sense of well-wishing that we're cultivating. So working with the goodness of all beings and our well wishes for them for a few minutes. As we come to the end, feeling a sense of your well-wishing, your well-wishing circling around the entire earth, including all beings, land beings, sea beings, air beings, beings who are doing good, beings who are doing harm,
1: Beings of all kinds.
0: Until you feel that it's touching around the other side of the earth. May all beings be safe.
1: May all beings be healthy. May all beings. Be happy. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be liberated.
0: Okay, so we'll stop here and take a five minute bio break and I'll see you in a few minutes for the Dharma talk. Okay, so um, I invite everyone to turn their cameras on. It's not required, but it does help with the sense of Sangha. So just an invitation there. And tonight I'll be talking about, uh, I thought with Valentine's Day especially, it was appropriate to uh, talk about what may be beyond the Brahma Viharas, um, or at least the way we normally understand the Brahma Viharas. So I've talked the last several months about the metta practice, loving kindness, which is what we just did. The mudita practice, empathetic joy, which is what we, uh, it's the practice when someone else is having good fortune. And for ourselves, it's the gratitude practice. The karuna practice of compassion, which is in response to someone suffering the OPACA practice, which is equanimity, which really is about um, how do we find peace when situations seem just beyond our understanding, either larger universal situations like pandemics and earthquakes or maybe in our own lives when bad things happen to good people and good things happen to, to bad people and you know, we can't really reconcile it somehow. Can we find a way to find peace, even in the face of the imperfections of life? And then also the forgiveness practice, which I consider the fifth brahmavihara, and um, is really about putting down our grievances, not so much for the other person, but for our own heart's well-being. And all of these practices purify the heart. So when we do the practices, they are a cultivation of our of the heart's innate qualities that can arise in the face of life's circumstances. So um, and and they're natural capacities that we have within us that often get shut down because they're um, they're tender these are the tender aspects of the heart, but actually they are extremely strong when cultivated. So there's kind of this paradox with the heart practices where it feels when we're doing the the work like we're becoming more vulnerable, but the, the reality is over time, the heart becomes can become so strong that we don't have to leave the present moment no matter what arises. So one of the things I've really come to see now that I've been teaching for 16 years is that, you know, all, in my opinion, legitimate meditations are trying to help us be in the present moment using different objects and different methods of being in the present moment, whether that's noticing the breath or body or noticing our thoughts that are arising or phenomena. And with the heart practices, What I was going to say, let me go back, is that one of the main reasons why people can't be in the present moment is because the heart is hurting and we can't tolerate being with what's there because it's too painful in the heart. And that's when we have to shut down and turn away. And whether that's something in our personal life or whether that's something on more of a, a global human scale. A lot of times we leave the present moment because the heart can't take it, basically. And the heart practices really cultivate our capacity to stay in the present no matter what. So when we're facing our own really difficult health issue or some kind of relationship breakup or... Um, some other really painful situation that our heart is just aching, the tendency is to shut down or whether it's a friend or loved one comes to us and there's, there's so much pain there that we can't tolerate it. We can't really be with it. And we have to go to our head and go into problem solving because we can't actually just be with the sorrow that is there or with the The fact that of the first noble truth. That the human experience is inevitably going to have things that are unsatisfactory and painful. And as long as we're identified with the the me, we're going to suffer. But that second arrow is optional. And that's really where Buddhism comes in is can we reduce the option, the suffering that's in addition to the pain? So. A lot of times we can't be in the present moment because we're what's in the present moment is something painful or it could be something at a global scale, like oppression. That we can't stand reading the paper and reading about one more unjust killing. Well, are there any just killings? But you know what I'm saying. You know, there's a lot we read in the news that's really hard to be with. And sometimes we just have to shut down because we can't be with it. It's too much. It's overwhelming. And so this is what these practices are cultivating is the capacity to have the heart respond in a way that it doesn't have to shut down because it's overwhelmed. And that's why these are practices, you know, we aren't expecting to get to that end point immediately. But we find with practice, there are more and more places that we can stay present, because our heart actually by becoming less defended with personality material that causes us to shut down, it feels more vulnerable at first, but ultimately, the heart can become so strong that we that it can be open all the time. I mean, that's a pretty advanced state, but that's the potential. So all of these practices help us cultivate that in different ways and with different kinds of beings. And, um, and so they're really robust and quite, um, Difficult practices in a lot of ways. I mean, sometimes they're seen as being like fluff, but they're not. They are very robust. And if people, if someone really does these practices the way they're intended and designed, they are, design, they are um, really profound and worthy of our attention. So the Buddha talked about the benefits of the Brahma Vihars. I haven't shared these before, but um, here are a few of them. You sleep easily. You awake easily. You have pleasant dreams. People will love you. Um, celestial beings and animals will love you. Uh, Davis will protect you. External dangers like poisons and weapons will not harm you your face will be radiant, your mind will be happy and serene, you will die unconfused, and you will be reborn in happy realms. So how do those sound? (laughs) I hadn't read this list in a while. When I read it, I thought, oh, that's pretty nice. Those sound pretty good. So you know there are a lot of benefits, and whether we believe on all those, really the point is that there, you know, these are practices that purify our consciousness in in ways that um, we can actually feel when we're doing them. That like when we go out into the world, um, there's not so much of the three defilements. You know, we don't have to go unconscious because something's too hard to be with. We don't have to get angry because somebody maybe has a view that's different than ours. And and instead of just feeling that that's painful and giving ourselves some loving kindness, we go into anger or hatred towards that person or judgment or um, desire. What the only way I can really be happy is through desire that I can't find a sense of goodness and love and contentment within myself. So I have to get it. I have to get it from outside. So these practices really um, allow us to not rely so much on our personality patterns that are summarized in the three defilements and to know our own nature more and more as well as the nature of others this underlying sense of goodness. So what I want to talk about now then, is there more than that? And in Buddhism, that's kind of, you know, there's more, but that's sort of the overview of the Brahma Viharas and and how they're beneficial. And they're also seen very, very often as antidotes to other, like if you're doing, um, say the pasana and you encounter some very difficult historical material that's painful, you could bring in some compassion for yourself or some loving kindness. So they're often seen as antidotes to difficult states and they're very effective in being used that way also. But is there more than that? And this is where the possibility of non-dual, a non-dual kind of love comes up. And so what do I mean by that? Well, non-duality, and this term isn't used so much in Buddhism, although non-duality itself is found in Buddhism, uh, but it's the term that's useful because it's, it's descriptive. So non-duality is when the sense of the subject and the object. So I'm the subject and I know this thing as an object that I'm aware of. So there's a sense of separateness. When that sense of separateness drops and there's a sense of non-separation that could either be characterized by emptiness, which is often how it's Buddhism tends to notice the emptiness aspect of the non-separation more. And the Western traditions like Christianity, Sufism, Islam, uh, Judaism, there's more of a flavor of the unity of things. And that's why, especially with, say, Christianity, there's a sense of unity with the divine That is more prevalent. We don't really have that as much. It's not so forefront in Buddhism, although a lot of people when they're having, when they're practicing, they can have experiences of unity doing Buddhist practices because this is part of our deeper nature. So the Brahma Viharas are pointing towards that possibility of experiencing non-duality that isn't so much about emptiness, but is about about love and unity that is characterized by things like Rumi poems. So if you've ever read any of the, the um, Sufi poets, you can hear them talking about their non-dual experiences in a way that's very, uh, very much about unity and a, about this ecstatic um, sense of love. And in Buddhism, we have four dimensions of non-duality that are found that are, uh, called the formless realm. So they, there is, uh, this is part of Buddhism, but in other traditions, they also have what's can be called a non-dual love or divine love or boundless love, a sense of, like when you hear the Christian mystics talking about, um, about union with the divine, this is what they're pointing to. And it's possible with the Brahma Viharas to have that experience. And I'll give you an, a visual on what I mean by non-duality. Another way of understanding non-duality is when the sense of the me goes dormant. And so the knee isn't active. And this is really what Buddhism is pointing to uh, is a sense of the thinning of that sense of the knee so that we can know ourselves beyond the personality and the body beyond what is conditioned. We can know the unconditioned aspect of what we are. And so one way of understanding this would be this visual that I use. So right now, what you're seeing, I won't ask for, for feedback, but it's not a trick question. So what do you see? Four fingers being covered by a piece of paper. So this is, this is our normal experience of reality that we see that, you know, I'm separate and, you know, I'm seeing each of you that are out there and here's my computer and here's the chair I'm sitting on and it's all separate. And from this perspective, that's true. It's not untrue. So this is how we normally see reality. But with, with non-duality and with awakening, but we can have tastes of that even without awakening. This becomes the perspective so that we are, we are experiencing our consciousness down here. And so what happens to the individual finger down here? Like I can still feel that bone moving, but the hand is more fundamental than any finger. And yet the fingers all go down into the hand. So when we're experiencing non-duality, our consciousness is down here. It's yes, there's still a body. There's still an individual consciousness. I mean, You and I aren't having the same experience right now. And the Buddha and Ananda weren't having the same experience because the Buddha was enlightened, the Ananda and Ananda took forever to get enlightened, you know. So even in the day of the Buddha, they were individual consciousness. But when we know our deeper nature beyond the the me, beyond the body, we are our consciousness is here. And at this point. Is are these fingers separate from down here? So that's really the potential is that all of us right this minute, your deeper nature is functioning. It's never not been functioning your whole life. It, that mystery is manifesting everything that you see right now. And it always has been. So it is the deepest aspect of you and the the deepest dimension of non-duality is the absolute that is Really what Theravadan Buddhism is pointing to as the ultimate. But there are, there are, there are deeper and shallower versions of our deeper nature. And the, um, Western traditions really focus on the closest dimension to the personal, which is really which is this divine love dimension that I'm talking about, that the Brahma Viharas are the closest thing we have in Buddhism to the divine love dimension. And so it is really within Buddhism that when we practice the Brahma Viharas deeply, and especially when we go to all beings, like we did with the the loving kindness practice we just did, we're starting to get a flavor of the goodness that is inherent in all of being, not only in every human, but in all of being, animals, the earth itself, all of this majestic universe that's manifesting there, we can have a direct experience of that manifestation as a kind of goodness that even with its imperfections, And the first noble truth that is inherently a part of the human experience for every human, including the Buddha, there can still be a sense of the goodness under that that isn't just about me and you as an individual, but is about here, is about this sense of everything being permeated by that goodness that has a sense of love inherent in it. And so that is what is being pointed to as a potential of the Brahma Viharas when we go beyond the personal level to the impersonal. So when we're experiencing, say, like the Brahma Viharas here, we're we're Seeing ourself and another being, the benefactor, the neutral person, the difficult person, all as separate beings. And that is fine. That is how the practice is designed. But there's also the potential for us to have tastes of that sense of goodness and love that is impersonal that isn't about love for one person or another. It doesn't exclude individuals, but the sense of it is that it is inherent to everything and that every human has the exact same nature in that way that I do, that it isn't different. This is the part that is universal. To all humans, which is true of all the boundless dimensions that they are, they are um, identical among every human. And this is, you know, this is why someone like in in Theravadan Buddhism, one of my favorite stories is the story of Angulimala, who the Buddha was someone the Buddha encountered, maybe some of you or all of you have heard this story but Angulimala was a serial killer. They didn't say that in the texts, but basically the name Angulimala means thumb mala. The guy was wearing the thumbs of his victims around his neck. He's wearing thumbs and the Buddha. So, you know, he'd killed all these people and was wearing their thumbs around his neck as jewelry. And that's pretty bad, you know, and the Buddha encountered him on the, um the road and, you know, maybe Angulimala was had bad intentions for the Buddha, but ultimately he joined the Buddha as a student and he became liberated. So, you know, this is the potential of somebody like Angulimala could have Buddha nature. There isn't a human out there right now, even the worst human on the planet who doesn't have Buddha nature and who doesn't have that potential. Not that we don't take action to stop injustices and wrongs that are happening and to improve the world. But at this level of perception, when our consciousness is here, we can perceive the goodness, even in the face of things that are really imperfect and that is an extremely, um, liberating experience, even if it only happens for a few seconds, to feel that everything is an emanation of love and that it has inherent goodness that isn't about what it does, that's inherent, that's part of its, of its nature. That's part of the nature of everything that we aren't separate from. And so this is impersonal love, the impersonal love of our deeper nature. That is universal among all beings and all of manifestation. And that we can, the Brahma Viharas are inclining us towards that. So it's not really explicit in Buddhism that um, this potential is there because Buddhism doesn't really focus so much on that dimension, that boundless dimension. Buddhism focuses on the other the other boundless dimensions of which there are four others um, that I won't get into, but I do have talks on that. There's one on my website and then there's one on inner craft on what I call the dimensions of non-duality that are different ways of experiencing either unity and or emptiness and that sense of the me going dormant where we, you know, these are the mystical experiences that are pointed to that often we feel are are out of reach or unattainable. But really all that's happening, when that happens, it could be just a second But what's happening is our consciousness is going beyond the me and going into our deeper nature that is that is manifesting right now as you're sitting here. That nature has always been underneath the me in your awareness. So anybody, even a non-meditator, any human can have a non-dual experience at any time because what's happening is they're in touch with their own nature. So, and, you know, maybe some or all of you have had tastes of that that are really profound and have um, inspired you on the path. And, um, so I'm, I'm talking about this now as a, a, some context for that. Like, what was that? I have people come to me all the time saying you know I had this experience and it was so profound and I I don't know what it does or even why it happened but what what was it you know and they'll tell me and it was them going their awareness dropping into their deeper nature for a second and there are practices that cultivate that um directly but any of the any of the you know People can have experiences of this in Vipassana, in Samatha, in Dzogchen. It's possible in any practice to have a non-dual experience. But it's most directly pointed to in self, the self-transcending category of practice. But with the Brahma Viharas, it's more likely that we would have the potential to experience this um this non-dual love dimension, boundless love or divine love, that feels like, um, like in the Christian tradition, they would talk about unity with God, or in the Sufi tradition and in, in the theistic traditions, that's how they frame it, is that it's a sense of unity with the divine. And so because it is the dimension that's closest to the human realm, it feels more personal than the other dimensions. The others get more and more and more impersonal, but it's a sense of love. Like I actually was talking to someone today who had an experience of this with another person and said that they thought it was, it was love that they were in love with the person because we don't have a sense necessarily of Love that can be impersonal as at the, at the human level. All we know and all we've been conditioned to know is love for another person. So sometimes when people experience divine love, they don't know what to do with it. And it gets projected onto a person. And actually what they're experiencing is more universal than that. And it can be something that we can experience Alone by ourselves, or even in relation to strangers. So it's it goes beyond the sense of loving a person because we love that person. And in that way, ultimately, it is something that can um, be fulfilling in itself, that there's a feeling that I am made of love. And so that sense of having to go outside and get it. Really becomes, uh, much less. And that's again, part of what helps for the thinning of the knee of the defilements of looking outside for what we want and that perpetual motion machine of, um, of the ego self. So it becomes a way that that can rest and that can, um, find its own inherent sense of satisfaction and contentment and equanimity. So that seemed like a good thing to talk about around Valentine's Day. So I think I'll stop there and see if there are any, um, any comments or questions about any of what I've talked about or the heart
1: practices.
0: Oh, Katie. Hey, did you have your hand up? Oh no, that was my arrow. Sorry. So hi. <laughs> oh,
2: hi. <laughs> um. So um I've been having kind of an ethical dilemma. And um I have mice in my house. <laughs> and um So, I don't know, out of the blue, I thought, well, maybe I'll get traps after I've been thinking of all these other things, and I just noticed it's difficult to have equanimity with the mice, <laughs> and it's um, yeah, yeah, so it's just been um. Like when I'm out in nature and going for walks and I'm by the pond and I see the pretty herons and the osprey, you know, and it's all very nice. This is like a piece of nature that's come into my house. <laughs> and um, yeah, I feel, I feel difficult about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you might have to do something about it too.
2: Right. 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 Yeah, so it just feels weird. So
0: they don't yeah. like government
2: oil. I'm going to yeah. try that. It is. It's, you know,
0: it, it's one of those areas that, um, that people struggle with. And I love that you are, that you are, um, having a dilemma about it because it really is, a, it shows your intent. Your intent to not harm, you know, your wish to not harm and yet you want it, your house to be, you know, you don't want to have rodents in your house because of health issues and other things. I'm kind of making that up, but.
2: Well, that's um, true. Yeah. The, right. health, the health issue is sort of, um, yeah, people get sick from mice where I live, you know.
0: Right. Right. So there's a practical consideration there, too, that, you know, and this is part of uh, part of the dilemma of being into physical form is that just to survive, we have to kill. I mean, even yes. if we're only eating plants, we still have to kill plants and eat them. So, uh, you know, it's part of the dilemma of physical existence is that we can't really live without killing microbes that we're walking on and other things Um, so how do we what
2: do we do with that
0: yeah so what have you how have you worked with it
2: so far well I've remembered that I met this um, one person and um, we're friends now but it was a little harder for me at first because she had just gotten this house and she was talking about trying to get rid of the mice and she used a no-kill trap but was horrible. They just came back, so she ended up having to terminate the mice. And I just remember being so judgmental about that. So it's just kind of um, it's sort of a a fun like karma circle of, of thought and intent, and, and right. like that idea that something else, like someone else, is outside of me somehow dealing with their mouse issue. It becomes my mouse issue, (laughs) (laughs) right?
0: Yeah, it is a little different one as someone else. When you got mice leaving droppings on your kitchen counter, it becomes really. How did you know? Yeah, (laughs) no, I've I've I haven't had that problem myself, but I do know people who have. And you know, if you live in the country, especially, you're gone for a week or two, then they get in, they can really wreck the place and cause a lot of you know expensive damage and other things. Yeah, so you're also touching on the precepts a little bit of, you know, the first precept of not, not killing, you know, not harming. And, um, you know, I, the way that I like to work with things like that is, is that it's not a black and white issue that, you know, there are Buddhists who, I mean, for example, Tibetan Buddhists, the first time I went to a Tibetan Buddhist retreat, you know, being Theravadan for many years, I was horrified the first day when I walked into breakfast and there were three kinds of meat and the smells were wafting, wafting, the bacon, the ham, the sausage, you know, and because Tibetan Buddhists in Tibet, they eat meat. They don't have, a, they can't grow enough vegetables to live on. So they raise yaks, and they don't kill them. They have the Hindus come and kill the yaks, and then they eat them. So even within Buddhism, you don't have agreement universally about what, what is right and what is wrong. So to me, the precepts are something that are personal, like the Dalai Lama. I heard recently somebody told me the story that the Dalai Lama was asked at an event. If someone, if your loved one was next to you and some, a murderer was coming at you with a gun to kill that person and you had a gun in your hand, would you shoot them? And the Dalai Lama said, I can't answer that question right now, but when you, when I'm in that situation with the gun in my hand, then I can give you the answer. So even the Dalai Lama couldn't, wasn't willing to be black and white about it because that's a dilemma you know the dilemma do you kill to save a loved one or do you let that person kill your loved one even though you could have saved them either of those is tragic you know so this is where I would really encourage you, you know, thinking, including the precepts in this into to what feels right to you is you do you want to try things that would do less harm, like a relocation trap where the mouse would get in there. I have used those. I did actually have a place many years ago where I had a mouse and I thought it was so adorable and I thought it could be a pet running around there and eventually it got into my food and I realized I can't actually have a wild mouse living in my place. And so I got one of those little relocation traps and I did move it away and it didn't come back. So they, you know, they can work. It depends on how many you have and other things, but you know, you could try those things, but ultimately you may find that you, that's not enough for you. And so I would encourage you to really be to feel into what is right for you and what the situation calls for and what you can, um, what you can live with.
2: So I guess it's, it's if I can feel anonymity for, you know, at this point it kind of, I hear everything you're saying, but I think I just would like to, um, find a way to make it feel okay
0: yeah right well there's a way to i think still be in touch with the goodness of those beings you know one can relocate a mouse without hating a mouse (laughs) you know you can make them go live outside without without hating them um and again, I've known people who were farmers, and, and you look at the native peoples over the years who would hunt deer and other things, and they would they would be with those animals and thank the animal for its life that was allowing that human to live. And it was done very respectfully, even though they were killing, you know, so that's to me, the whole idea of bringing consciousness to what you're doing. Is really what is um, being pointed to with Buddhism. And I, I don't know what the right answer is for you. So, you know, I wouldn't want to say this is the right answer. It's really for your own, your own practice and unfoldment. You know, you could try and ask them to go away. You know, I, I mean, (laughs) I don't know, but really it's, it's to take it as a practice of what feels right for you and you may not, you may not have equanimity with the fact that they're there, but when you make a decision about what you're going to do, that would be the point to really have equanimity with whatever outcome you're going to do, whether you're going to live with having mice in your home and just live with the results of that, or whether you're going to live with doing something that might end up killing another being you know, um, that there comes a point when something has happened. I mean, we all do harm in this life. I, again, you know, I was working with somebody recently who was looking at something historical and having remorse, and it can't be undone. But it's not really helping us. This is where, like, the forgiveness practice comes in. If we have to do something, like the native people who would kill a deer and then eat it, but they would they would they would incline to the reality of the situation that they needed to eat. And this is what was available for them to eat. And so they could find a way to be at peace with that. So that's really the equanimity practice, is about realizing the truth of things and living with our own imperfections and the imperfections of the human experience and being able to find peace within that, no matter what your choice is. How does that land with you?
2: It lands nicely. Thank you. Yeah, well, like sometimes,
0: you know, we someone might have to break off a relationship with someone, you know, that sometimes, especially in the spiritual path, we get to a point where maybe we don't want to be friends with somebody we were friends with for years. And, and because of how our lives have gone, things go in different directions and um, there can be a lot of grief and sadness, but still know it's the right thing to do. And that's part of, can I find peace with having to do something that I know might hurt someone that still feels like a truth? And that's really what the equanimity practice helps us with, is how to reconcile the imperfections of the human experience.
1: Great, thank you. Yeah, Yeah, you're welcome.
0: Rihanna. Hi Tina. Hi. Thank you for your talk. Sure. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to whether or not if you're pointing toward union and um, boundless love in that sort of area, is there a natural transition that happens through that toward emptiness? Or is is there sort of a what you're pointing at is where you're going to get to does that Mm -hmm. make sense um well there's there's a couple there's two broadly there's two kinds of emptiness one is the actual deficiency of the ego because the ego self the way it's understood in buddhism and even in some psychological understanding is that the ego self that we take ourselves to be is a construct. It's it's a, it's a psychological construct, and at the at the core of it, it is actually empty in a way that it isn't real. So there is an an emptiness in that that is actually deficient and that feels deficient. So if we're in touch with that, it can feel deficient in a way that's unpleasant because it is. There's a truth that it isn't what we actually are. It's a construct made of con- con- concepts basically in our, in our mind and in the psyche. So that kind of emptiness is something we work through when we're working through the personality material and the, what we take in ourself to be all the self images, all our defense mechanisms, all of our beliefs, identities, all of these things that really aren't what we are. they are psychological identity but they aren't what we really are so they are empty in a certain way and that's what the no self experience is based on but there's a sense of deficiency in that because really the ego self is deficient it's not real so that kind of emptiness we do move through at times when we're working with personality material then the other kind of emptiness is the emptiness that is liberating so, so like the no-self experience or the emptiness that I'm talking about with the boundless dimensions. What's really being pointed at in Buddhism of the unconditioned? Um, that emptiness isn't deficient. It it is an emptiness that is free of delusion. So, it can be scary because it's. It challenges the knee, so it can be scary, but it doesn't feel deficient. So there's a different, when we say emptiness, it's kind of unfortunate we have the same word for both of those. But um, that we don't have to necessarily move through that emptiness to experience divine love. So divine love, that dimension, for many people, is the easiest one to experience because it's the closest to the human experience it's the most like the human experience because we can kind of get a sense of it with human love or love with an animal you know sometimes love with an animal is easier because you know it's there they can be less complicated where we feel a really kind of a selfless love with that other being that's getting kind of close to the divine love dimension it's not exactly it but it's like not too far away so a lot of times when people start experiencing the need thinning out they can have experiences of divine love without having the emptiness experience that is really pointed to in buddhism and in in the hindu tradition well also and and others i mean the western traditions have that but it's just not as prominent so um does that get to what you're asking? Well, I think sort of. It, it's, so I was speaking of the second form of emptiness, and, and I guess this is potentially a, a terribly greedy question, but um, I guess if you're aiming for love and that union, the close, the close realm, when you get there, is that where you're going to land, or is that something that would carry you into the more distant realms? Does that make Yeah, sense? well, I wish that it was it was um, as neat and orderly as you're saying, <laughs> you know, it's not quite like, OK, I'm aiming here. So now I'm just going to go through each dimension in a nice, you know, orderly fashion. And it's it doesn't usually quite work that way, no matter what practice we're doing. I mean, people are doing Vipassana, trying to get to the absolute and they can have a divine love experience, you know. So it's really it's there's a certain element of grace there you know and you can see this like if you look at Bernadette Rogers who was a Christian modern Christian mystic you can read her books I can't remember what her book is called but she was in the Christian tradition she had this total zen awakening and um and no one knew what to do with her in Christianity you know she had to go find some buddhist people to tell her what was happening so you know just because someone's in christianity doesn't mean they're not going to have a buddhist experience or buddhists aren't going to have a a christian experience so um you know this is where it's kind of unfortunate and i get a lot of people who who had an experience outside of the tradition that they were studying and then they they didn't it wasn't confirmed because there was a narrow definition of where we were aiming. So that's really one of the things that's just true is that um, that our no matter where we're aiming, our deeper nature has its own course that isn't going to be controlled by the meat. You know, and that's why it's, it's helpful. That's part of why I'm doing these talks on the dimensions of non-duality so that people can see that no matter what tradition you're in, these are all parts of everyone's deeper nature and they can arise no matter what tradition you're actually practicing in and, and they're all valid. They're all valid. So you could be aiming, you could be doing the Brahma Viharas, for example, and have an emptiness experience. You know, there's really no way to know what will arise for you because when the knee goes dormant, like the dimensions, the way that I understand and experience the dimensions, there are, they are sequentially deeper with the absolute being the deepest dimension that is manifesting everything. It's almost like if you want to think of, um, a black hole or antimatter. It is the mystery that is the deepest mystery that we can't ever really know fully because it's 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 like a void that sucks in everything including the me um but then the other dimensions come out of it so like in Tibetan Buddhism they focus on the next dimension up and the Hindus focus on the next dimension up and and um but when the knee drops, we don't really know which dimension will arise, you know, and, and it doesn't really matter that much. When it's happening, it doesn't matter because if it happens to someone, it's profound. And that's really what the person notices is, wow, something really important just happened, you know, and that is the most important thing. But what the downside is that sometimes if a person reports that, to someone who's only familiar with one kind or is very narrow in their tradition, they won't validate it for the person. And then it can't land for that person. And it's a really miss, it's a missed opportunity to really let something profound that happened in your own consciousness to, to take root and flower. And so I would say be, be open. You know, if, if something, uh, That feels like really profound, like you felt boundless and there was the sense, there's the sense of okayness and the need being, being, um, be having some freedom from that to just take it in. And it doesn't really matter in some ways what dimension it was, but it might not be what you expected. And that's okay. Because any taste of our deeper nature are all extremely beneficial and, um, and inspiring on the path. Thank you. Sure. Well, that's a good ending place for tonight. And, um, I wish you all, uh, freedom of the heart, freedom of the heart and tastes of your own nature that are inspiring and liberating to you. Good night. And you're welcome to unmute and say good night to everybody if you'd like. Good night. Good night. Thank you, good night, Tina. Everybody. Good, night, good night, everybody.
1: Good night, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. next month, Mimi. Goodbye. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>